Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a pair of notorious criminals that I'm, I'm sure you've heard of these uh, these two before. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, usually, of course, just known as Bonnie and Clyde. Now, these two were the most infamous members of the Barrow gang. And uh, while, again, I'm sure you've heard of them, I I wonder how much you actually know about their story and why they became so infamous. I mean, I have to admit, before I read about these two in detail, if you'd actually told me that they were like fictional characters, I probably would have believed it. I mean, of course, I'd heard of them. But, you know, if you said they were just like from a film or whatever, like Thelma and Louise, I'd I'd probably, oh, yeah, that's probably true, right? Anyway, but they are, I guess they were rather than they are, uh, real people. And uh, they robbed and, and, and stole and murdered their way throughout Central U- uh, Central US uh, throughout the early 1930s. Now, they did it all as part of a group, too, which is often overlooked. Uh, but we'll get across the Barrow Gang properly, uh, as well as their headline, Act of Body and Clyde. Um, their crime sprees really did capture the imagination of the public in a huge way back then, and the media sensationalised their exploits enormously. So much so that uh, you know a lot of the popular conception of the two is uh, is actually sort of you know rife with inaccuracies, as we'll discuss, uh, as we'll as we'll talk about, but no less exciting for for that, of course. Um, so yeah, it's a story with something for the whole family here, really. You know, a bit of romance, crime, detective work, blood and guts, and of course, horrible murder. So really, you know, just really, just as I say, something for the whole family. Uh, although no ships, no ships to speak of, sorry, but uh, you can't have everything, no naval history this week. Anyway, let's get to it here and, uh, and have a chat about Bonnie. Oh, actually, before we do that, um, quick note before we start here, before we talk about these two, usually I'd use last names on this podcast. I try to use my last names most of the time wherever possible, um, but I found even while reading about the, these two that it was very confusing, you know, not calling them Bonnie and Clyde uh, rather than calling it, you know, calling them Parker and Barrow. Um, they're just known as Bonnie and Clyde. And then on top of that, there are a lot of family members involved in this story. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of Barrows. Uh, so we're going to stick with, uh, with Bonnie and Clyde here rather than Parker and Barrow. I mean, per- Parker and Barrow, honestly, it sounds like a bloody investment firm, not a couple of notorious 1930s gangsters. But Bonnie and Clyde it is. Here we go. Rev up those engines and we're off. Here we go. We're going all the way back, all the way back uh, here to the opening years of the 1900s as we meet these two properly. Bonnie Parker, born in 1910 in a small Texan town called Rowena. Uh, her dad died when she was just four, and her wid- widowed mother moved back uh, in with Bonnie's grandparents in Cement City. Uh, Bonnie dropped out of high school, married a bloke named Roy Thornton, uh, although this was short-lived as he was a petty crook uh, who was often on the wrong side of the law, although, interestingly, they never divorced. Uh, so, you know, she was technically a married woman through the day that she died. Uh, anyway, Bonnie ended up uh, moving back in with her mum and started working as a waitress in Dallas as we pushed through to the end of the 1920s and into, the, into 1930 with Bonnie in her late teens by this stage. And on the other hand, Clyde Barrow, uh, he was born a year before Bonnie in 1909 to an impoverished family of farmers southeast of Dallas. He and his family, they lived under a wagon after moving to the slums of West Dallas until they could save up for an, enough for a tent. Um, and uh, anyway, Clyde had a fair few run-ins with the law as a teenager as well. He got arrested for the first time at the age of 17 after failing to return a rental car. Uh, and uh, the second time when he and his brother Buck were caught with, uh, of all things, they were caught with stolen turkeys. Uh, You know, didn't expect a bit of surprise turkey crime history in the podcast, I bet. Anyway, he's going around as petty criminal all the way through to 1929, and in January 1930, 
he and Bonnie meet and our story begins in earnest. They met on the 5th of January 1930 at one of Clyde's mate's places in West Dallas. And apparently it was one of those love at first sight situations you hear so much about. Nice to have a bit of the old romance on the podcast. Don't get too much of that. Bonnie was in the kitchen making uh, making a hot chocolate when uh, when Clyde came in to visit his mate. and uh, she, she was 19, he was 20, and these two straight away just head over heels, the story goes. The moment they set eyes on each other, uh, this began the uh, the rootin' tootin' shootin' story of, of Bonnie and Clyde with uh, rather more rootin' than is often the case. Oh, thank you. <laughs> anyway, these two, uh, these two, they're absolutely inseparable after this, uh, absolutely inseparable, and uh, for the next few weeks, they were with each other almost all the time. However, this came to an abrupt end when Clyde, who, again, as I've said, was a petty criminal going around, you know, nicking stuff, doing whatever else, he was done for stealing a car and he's sent to prison eastern prison prison farm in in april 1930 now Bonnie did smuggle him in a weapon, and he was able to escape, but only very briefly. Uh, he was caught not too long afterwards, and he was dragged back to the clink, and he did not have a very good time there at all. Uh, he just he really hated it in prison, and, and part of this, I'm sure, was because he gained some rather um, unwanted attention, shall we say, from some of some of the other more predatory inmates, which you know, I have to say, didn't end too well for one of them as. Clyde killed him, uh, bashed his head in with a pipe, apparently. Uh, first time he'd ever killed anyone. But uh, he didn't get done for this killing either. Uh, one of the other inmates who was already serving a life sentence actually falsely confessed to uh, to, to killing this uh, this predator so as to prevent Clyde from going down for it. But uh, even, you know, even so, Clyde's still stuck there in prison. And as the time passed, um, you know, and, and as Clyde remained in this prison farm, right, uh, in January 1932, two years after he'd met Bonnie and coming up on two years in prison, he he attempted to actually avoid having to do the hard labour involved being being at this prison farm uh, by chopping off two of his toes and hobbling himself. Now this rather bold move proved to be totally unnecessary. Very unfortunately for for him, the timing his timing was not very good. Uh, he as he was released less than a week after doing this, which has really got to bloody sting. Adding. Well, yes, insult to a rather literal literal injury here. Imagine this, you know, you hatch this great plan to avoid having to work, off come the toes, and then you get released just like that. Bloody hell, I mean, give me my bloody toes back, mate, if you don't mind. Clyde actually walked with a limp for the rest of his life and had to take off his shoes whenever he drove. He'd drive in sock feet because he couldn't control the pedals, otherwise missing his two toes. But uh, it turns out that the reason he was released is that on the outside, his mum had been campaigning to have him released and, uh, and, and you know, he, her timing was, just, she was just a little bit late with it, but she just missed out, missed out on saving two of her son's toes before being successful. But uh, here's the thing, right? We're kind of making light of the situation, but uh, the very serious impact of Clyde going to prison in this way is that he went in as a sort of, you know, carefree and careless um, a petty criminal, you know, knocking off cars, doing all this, all this, all this sort of other stuff, right? As, as a, as a, not I'm going to not going to say harmless, but a relatively harmless, at least petty, petty crook, came out a hardened criminal, came out a hardened and embittered criminal who had a great hatred and disdain for the uh, for the prison uh, for the prison system here. When he's when he was released on the second of February in uh, in 19th, uh, 1932, he didn't waste any time whatsoever in getting back back into crime, and and this time much much more seriously and much more intensely than before. Clyde sought retribution on the prison that he just left and he immediately started going around robbing shops and petrol stations to fund his plan his planned raid on the prison now he was joined by a mate of his from inside prison fellow named Fultz as well as Bonnie of course and in the coming time um, as other people came and went from this group, it became known as the Barrow Gang, using Clyde's last name, of course, Clyde Barrow. Anyway, to begin with just these three, they're going around knocking off shops, petrol stations, gathering money, gathering guns. Uh, Fultz and Bonnie were captured at one point, actually, during one of these uh, one of these criminal uh, criminal escapades. Um, 
they bungled a burglary. They were arrested and imprisoned. And this, and this was the end of Fultz as part of the Barrow gang. But Bonnie, she was released uh, before too long and she rejoined Clyde. Now, these two obviously just nuts for each other. They seem to be fully aware that they were headed towards, you know, a fiery and premature death. Uh, but they just didn't seem to care. They were, you know, off they go again, robbing and stealing. As we head into the summer of 1932, uh, their their uh, their wild criminal escapades again. They they they, ta- they take a, a turn for the rather more dark actually. Because in August, Clyde he's hanging out with two mates in Oklahoma. He's drinking moonshine uh, when they're approached by two cops. Now Clyde and one of his mates, Raymond Hamilton, uh, who would go on to join the Barrow Gang. Uh, they actually pulled weapons on these cops and shot them as they approached. They they killed one of the cops and, and, and wounded the other. And this was the first cop that Clyde had ever killed. And I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but it's certainly not going to be the last. Bonnie, Clyde, and this other fella, Hamilton, they uh, they obviously, after after shooting this cop, they're like, that, uh, that to go on the run. Uh, and, of course, because, you know, they're now gathering a fair bit of heat. Uh, and, again, don't want to spoil the ending, but uh, won't be the last amount of, won't be the last amount of heat that they gather before this story is out. So the three of them, as, as the nascent sort of Barrow gang here, they're going around uh, in the coming months, uh, you know, trying to keep on the move, trying to stay ahead of the law, uh, rob- robbing robbing the pants off of everywhere that they could. Again, small, mostly small-time stuff. Bonnie and Clyde, as we'll talk about, are sort of famous for knocking off banks, which they did a little bit, but mainly it was just small-time stuff, shops and petrol stations, as I say, servos and whatever else. Anyway, before the end of 1932, Hamilton actually left the group and he was replaced by another fella, a 16-year-old named W.D. Jones. Although it's not the end of Hamilton in this story, as we'll see in due course. But Jones, he was already a petty criminal, even at the age of 16. He's nicking license plates and, and maybe even cars as well. Uh, and he was hugely enamoured, hugely enamoured by uh, Bonnie and Clyde, outlaws on the run, you know, very romantic tale. And so he very eagerly joined them. And it wasn't long before young Jones was robbing and even robbing and even murdering at Clyde's side. The very next day, as it happens, not long at all, the two men shot and killed someone while trying to steal his car. Now, this ended up sort of setting the tone for the relationship that uh, that Jones would have with Bonnie and Clyde because Clyde used Jones' involvement in this killing as leverage to ensure that Jones stayed with them, stayed loyal to them because, of course, he had this dirt on Jones, the, the killing of this uh, this bloke they were, they were stealing the car from. And so now as we head into 1933, the Barrow Gang has got these three members, Bonnie, Clyde and W.D. Jones, but W.D. Jones very much at the mercy of Bonnie and Clyde and, and you know, a sort of a, a lackey of theirs, a goon rather than an equal partner. On the 6th of January 1933, the three of them accidentally stumbled into a police ambush, right? And now this police ambush, despite obviously, you know, their their rising notoriety, this police ambush hadn't been for Bonnie and Clyde, hadn't been for the Barrow Gang. It actually been set for a different criminal. But this resulted in Clyde, after stumbling into this police ambush, uh, it resulted in Clyde killing another cop, another one, shooting him in the chest with a shotgun. And Jones, for his part, he was firing like a madman out of the car, where he was with Bonnie. Clyde uh, ran back to the car, got in, and the three of them zoomed away at top speed. And... Uh, after this latest killing, the three of them once again sort of had to take the heat off. They had to lay low for a time, hiding in the hills of Missouri and, and Arkansas, and generally just, again, trying to keep a low profile. And it was during this time, as they were, you know, uh, cutting about in the, in, in the, in the backcountry hills here, that these three stopped on a back road, on a back road somewhere, and took pictures of themselves with their car and with the uh, ever-increasing arsenal of weaponry they had. And these pictures, as you may be aware, became enormously famous. And they are some of the most iconic images 
in American criminal history. You can go online and see them. Pictures of Bonnie and Clyde and Jones in various poses near the car, guns on display around them, being shown off in different ways. And one picture in particular of Bonnie went on to have uh, the most important legacy of all of them, arguably. Uh, But we'll talk about that in a minute. Hang on for a tick because we'll come back to these pictures. As you'll see, they'll tie back into the story. But uh, I just want that that's that's a sort of little bookmark for you there. These two are off with Jones up in the off in the hills somewhere taking these very famous pictures, which again, I recommend you go and have a go and have a squiz at them uh, because you can see them all online today. Anyway. After laying low for a few months, Bonnie, Clyde and Jones, they headed back towards Oklahoma after Clyde heard that his brother Buck, you'll remember Buck of the of, the, of Stolen Turkey fame, had had uh, be, just re- recently been uh, released from prison. Now, Buck, he was staying with his wife Blanche at her mother's place, but Bonnie, Clyde and Jones, they convinced him to up and join them, right? So the ranks of the Barrow Gang, they swelled from three to five. Now, Blanche, she didn't want Buck to join, uh, join his brother. She, didn't have, she didn't, really didn't want uh, uh, Buck to have anything to do with this, uh, with, the, you know, with, the, with the life of crime here. But Buck, he made his mind up, and so poor old Blanche was kind of dragged along for the ride. Uh, so now we've got, well, I mean, the other perspective to look at this now, I mean, you know, we say poor Blanche for being dragged along, but what about poor young Jones, right? He's sort of, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's been roped into this whole thing as a young bloke and he's now the fifth he's now a bit of a bloody fifth wheel because he's got he's got uh, the 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 Barrow brothers both with their misses you know both their respective misses is there hanging out coming on all of these uh, all uh, coming in the car with them as well so poor old Jones sitting there go oh, yeah okay yeah well, good excellent night yeah good to be here. anyway the five of them they set up shop in a town called Joplin in Missouri uh, where they established a little hideout. Now, hideout's probably the wrong word. They didn't do much hiding there. They really, you know, it has to be said, they did not keep a low, low profile. They'd all get pissed as chooks. They'd play loud, loud card games well into the night. They'd unsavory visitors at all times. And one time, Clyde even accidentally fired one of the guns that he'd had that he that he had indoors while cleaning it. You know, so oops, not not the sort of neighbours that you'd want really in a quiet suburban uh, household there. And. Um, Interestingly, despite them being not ideal neighbours, none none of their neighbours actually complained directly to them. I guess, you know, they didn't want to go and complain to the people who were shooting guns inside their house, as un, as, as surprising as they as that may be to you. But one of the one of the uh, one of their neighbours did actually go to the cops and complain to the police, tell them, you know, that something something fishy's going on inside this house. Visitors coming in at uh, all hours of the day and night, drunken late late night card games and and, and firearms being discharged. So the cops, right, they assume that there's some kind of illicit uh, bootlegging operation going on at this stage. They get a group of five officers together to go and check it out, see what's going on. And uh, I guess the the important thing to note here is that these cops, again, were just out on what they considered to be a routine checkup. They weren't really expecting to come across five criminals with an arsenal that would, you know, very easily outfitted an entire fortress uh, and some very, very trigger-happy jailbirds here because uh, they were, yes, so unprepared. Let me tell you this. They were so unprepared for what they came across at this hideout. Now, Clyde, we've already talked about how he, you know, seemed to have a bit of a bit of a thing for murdering cops, and he certainly did. He certainly did kill a lot of cops in his time, but he didn't kill Every single one. I don't know. It's difficult to paint uh, an accurate portrait of what his what his exact attitude was towards law enforcement. Certainly, very negative. 
but he didn't kill every single cop that he saw and not even every single cop that was in his power there were certainly very there are are many examples of him kidnapping uh cops and and civilians and then later releasing them after having driven them a long way away from wherever they were wherever they were you know taken from and sometimes even giving them money to actually get get up get them on their way safely so there were instances of clyde and his gang uh kidnapping uh, cops and and as i say others other civilians and uh and sort of letting them on their letting them free on their merry way once they're driven 100 miles away from wherever they were picked up from but having said that any and every time that clyde barrow thought that he was going that he was facing potential recapture he would stop at nothing to avoid it. So if he was certain that, you know, a, a, a law enforcement officer would be under his control, maybe he'd go for the kidnapping. But if he thought there was even a hint of a chance of him being, going back to the clink, he would start shooting. He would try to kill, shoot and kill his way out of any situation that he thought his freedom was at stake. So when five cops arrive, arrive at the hideout, the two Barrow brothers, along with Jones, they all open fire immediately and they use the the quite considerable firepower of their arsenal to completely outgun these poor cops now Clyde was using a great big high-powered automatic rifle uh, to keep the to keep the cops at bay while the other four made ready their escape now this you know this is the sort of I, I don't know a huge amount about guns but this gun was a very very serious business I understand firing uh, great big uh, high high-powered uh, rounds at, at these cops who just obviously had to duck for cover and hope for the best here um and uh, as a result of, of you know being so supremely outgunned, the cops were unable to prevent the Barrow gang from making more or less a clean getaway. They all piled into the car and sped away as soon as Clyde joined them after providing this covering fire. However, even if the Barrow gang had got away safely with their lives unharmed, they had been forced to leave almost everything behind them at the hideout. Most of their guns, Clyde's guitar, Buck's parole papers, and many, many rolls of undeveloped film from the back road photo shoot that we mentioned before. And these photos, once they'd been seized and developed by the cops and proliferated by the media, they turned Bonnie and Clyde into a sensation. Now, of course, this is the period of American criminal history known as the public enemy era. You know, this is this is the period during the Great Depression where famous outlaws like John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd and, and, and many others were on these prolific uh, crime sprees that, again, captured the imagination of the American public. And Bonnie and Clyde, they added fuel to this fire. They were criminals of another type altogether. You know, they were a young couple, wild and passionate, embodying this glamorous ideal of, of criminal romance. But here's the thing. It won't surprise you, right, that to, it won't surprise you at all to learn that the media, they took this story down a certain path, and a path that heavily influenced the legacy of Bonnie and Clyde to this very day, and uh, much of it was based on a single picture, this picture that I mentioned before of Bonnie, the, the picture that I talked about as being so important. There's no doubt that the Barrow gang were hardened criminals, specifically the men. Uh, they'd been in and, out, in and out of trouble, in and out of prison uh, their entire lives. Uh, and Well, at least uh, the two Buck brothers had, not so much Jones. Um, and they demonstrated their willingness to take a life at a moment's notice. But what really inflamed public interest in the case was Bonnie. She was painted as this hardened, murderous criminal as well, principally thanks to this famous po- photo. You may have seen it, right? In, in this photo, Bonnie... She's leaning one foot on the bumper of their car. Uh, She's holding a pistol at her hip and she's got a cigar clamped between her teeth and a steely gaze in her eyes. And the paper, the papers around the the nation, they picked up this picture and they ran with it. They branded her as a cigar smoking gun mole, a, uh, a woman who had given herself over to this life of crime just as the men had. And this was sensational stuff, sensational stuff back in the 1930s. The public, they were fascinated by it. However, 
there's not a lot to suggest that it was hugely accurate. I mean, it wasn't a very accurate portrayal of Bonnie. Bonnie definitely took part in many of the crimes that the Barrow Gang perpetrated, but according to people like Jones and Blanche, who were in- interviewed about you know, interviewed about it later in, in later years, she very rarely fired guns. She never smoked cigars. Um, she would take part in the robberies and sometimes act as the getaway driver, but she very rarely shot people, and in fact, she smoked cigarettes, not cigars. So the photo actually seemed to have been a bit of a piss take, although on the face of it, she does look like a mean, lean killing machine, and it certainly did very, very heavily influence the public perception, not just her, but of course Clyde and the and the Barrow gang uh, at large, because, you know, this, this young sort of, uh, uh, you know, good-looking couple were, were going around wild and free, reckless and murdering and, 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 and stealing and doing all this other stuff. So it, it really did, as I say, inflame the public, uh, flame the public interest. Anyway, this picture, along with all the others, you know, her pointing a, shot, a shotgun at Clyde, Jones sitting in front of the car surrounded by guns, all this stuff, it captured the public imagination. All of a sudden, Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang, they were some of the most notorious criminals in the country. Now, this made things very tricky for the five of them as they roamed around in their car, attempting to keep the heat off while still relying on, you know, robberies in order to keep the money coming in. They continued to rob and steal, and again, while the media made them out to be these icy-blooded bank robbers, they would usually just knock off petrol stations and they didn't often go over, uh, you know, they didn't often go for these sort of big and complicated. I mean, look, they did make a few attempts to rob banks here and there, but with rather mixed results. And given the dangers involved, they, they mainly stuck to smaller targets, especially as their notoriety rose. They also didn't hesitate to kidnap people, as I mentioned before. Anyone who got in their way, police or civilian, usually uh, would, would, they usually would let them go, uh, releasing them a long way away from home, sometimes a bit of money, as I said, for them to find their way back. But uh, they'd stop at nothing to to protect their freedom, and uh, as we'll discover, they they took a fair a fair few more lives before uh, before their story come to an end. But as time went on, the heat didn't really seem to subside. The gang they were driven to more and more desperate lengths as as the papers continued to publish any details of their latest escapades or anything else, and so they were kind of forced to uh, to, to to really the edges, the fringes of civilization, in order to keep themselves uh, out of you know, out of the public eye. They they were known throughout the country uh, thanks to these photographs. It made them very difficult. It made it very difficult for them to, to live with any kind of comfort. They had to start avoiding hotels and restaurants lest they be recognised. They would cook over campfires. They'd bathe in streams rather than going into towns. Um, and additionally, the fact that there were five of them cramped into one car led to some... I mean, as you can imagine, led to some real difficulties. The gang, they're bickering and fighting amongst themselves more often than not as they made their way around. And this led to a change that the way that the gang operated, too, over time. They actually became less likely to kidnap people, unfortunately, and more likely to just shoot them in cold blood. There were fewer survivors of, of you know, anyone who encountered this, uh, the Barrow Gang, became progressively less likely to survive it uh, because of, uh, you know, the, the changing dynamic in this group here. But of course, these killings, they only, you know, any, any killing they perpetrated only drew more attention to their case and it made things even harder for the gang. But still, they roamed around stealing money as, you know, as well as guns wherever they could. They knocked off a couple of National Guard armories as well to keep their, uh, keep their ammunition and their hardware uh, stockpile very, uh, very well, uh, well stocked at all times there. Of course, they had to replenish the ones that they left behind in the hideout. But eventually... It all came a guts for them in June 1933, when on the 10th, Clyde, right, he's driving, he's, uh, he's going along at his, at, his, at his characteristically reckless pace. The five of them are there in the car. They've got a boot full of uh, guns and ammo. And cruising along, 
very quickly indeed, Clyde didn't notice construction warning signs at a bridge. Now, at this point, as I say, they're at a very, you know, they're living the life of desperate criminals. They're on the lam, basically, out living, you know, as I say, eating over campfires, bathing in, 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 in creeks. And uh, what happened next really did force a very big change to the way that they were living their lives. Because when Clyde missed these construction warning signs at, uh, at a bridge, right, his uh, characteristically reckless pace of driving meant that the car plummeted into an open ravine. Now, we don't know exactly what happened as a result of this car crash. We don't know exactly why this took place. There was either a petrol fire or uh, battery acid sprayed out from the car, but something gave Bonnie horrific third-degree third burns right down her leg. I mean, there are obviously some minor injuries, a car going down to a ravine. They're not going to come out of it without any you know, scrapes and bruises and whatever else. But Bonnie in particular, very, very badly injured. Her skin had been completely burnt off in places, and apparently the bone was visible, uh, again, in some other places on her leg. It really was a very just a terrible injury. She could hardly walk. And uh, for much of the time after this, she actually had to be carried around by Clyde, who you'll remember is hobbling around with a limp himself. So neither of them were able to, uh, you know, sort of uh, walk particularly. Well, they're, you know, they're, both of them have their walk affected here. So, so bad news, bad news for the gang here. They tried to treat, find some way to treat this injury. They got some assistance from a family on a nearby farm and then found they, they, they drove around to find a place in Arkansas for her to recover. Now, the gang's medical knowledge actually was better than you might think. They'd had to treat everything from minor injuries to non-lethal gunshot wounds over the, over the months and years. And so after getting supplies from a pharmacy, they were actually able to treat Bonnie's leg reasonably effectively. But despite their success with that, however, they stuffed up a robbery in a nearby town and they murdered another law enforcement officer as they escaped, meaning once again they had to go on the run, or I guess in Bonnie's case, on the hobble. Oh, thank you. I that I should have that should have taken that one out of the, the show notes there. That was a yeah, that was a stinker. Anyway, the the Barrow Gang um, they made they made their way to Platte City. Or is it Platter City? I don't know if it's Platter or Platter City. Sorry to all the all the Missourians here who are getting cross with me for that. Uh, Platte City in Missouri, right near the border with Kansas. Unsurprising they post up near a state border. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, that was unsurprising, although it was surprising that once they found a place to stay, they stayed there more than one night. Up until then, Clyde would actually keep them on the move. They never usually stayed uh, more than one night in any given place. Um, and they didn't do all that much to allay any suspicion either they found a place with some brick cabins for rent two cabins that uh, that uh, like were, were connected had a, a double garage in between them uh paid for the accom- accommodation with small change that they'd stolen from gumball machines in the petrol stations they'd robbed recently blanche was set out to do this she was sent out to pay and she did so wearing jodpers which in a sleepy backwater town like this in the 1930s raised a fair few eyebrows, as it was very, very unusual for a woman, a woman to wear something like that in these parts in this time in history. And she also claimed to only be in a party of three, not five, which was very suspicious when she later returned to buy five dinners for the people in the cabins, not three. And on top of that, because they, they hired these cabins rather than, you know, place in a motel or a hotel, they were unable to mingle with other guests and, and sort of make themselves, you know, anonymize themselves a little bit uh, amongst other, amongst other travellers. Additionally. Clyde used newspapers to cover the windows, and uh, they had backed their garage, their car into the garage rather rather than drive it in nose first. And this was something that was very closely associated with gangsters who might need to make a quick get- getaway. So they really are 
raising a lot of suspicion here. There are a lot of uh, you know a lot of red flags waving around as as the Bar- Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang they uh, they settle into this um, you know into into these little uh, these these little, these little cabins, and once they'd finished you know attracting all this attention and this suspicion in and around the cabins, they only then made it worse by gaining even more attention and more suspicion when Jones and Blanche went into town. They went into town to buy food and some more medical supplies, and by now, the cops have had reports from the owners of the cabin, and then, after these medical supplies have been bought, from the reports from the pharmacist of, the, of, of this suspicious activity, and the cops are worried that they have the notorious Bonnie and Clyde on their hands. The sheriff, Holt Colley, he had been uh, he'd been warned about the Barrow Gang. He'd been told to look out for people buying supplies like this because it was known that uh, one of the one of the gang was very badly injured, and so he started to put the cabins under surveillance. But here's the problem for Collie, however, he knew. He was outgunned by these gangsters. He'd, he'd heard what had happened in Joplin. He knew that they were very, very well armed. Uh, you know, they were known to have stolen so many powerful guns from National Guard armories and whatever else. And he only had a small, very small police department to work with here. So Collie gets on the blower. He calls around and he's able to secure not only reinforcements, but some much heavier hardware. Bigger guns, bulletproof shield, supposedly bulletproof armoured car as well. So unlike many or perhaps all of the other scraps that the Barrow Gang had had with law enforcement, this one looked to be a bit of a fairer fight. Before this, they dealt with cops who were unprepared to go up against a group of hardened and well-armed criminals. But this time around, Sheriff Collie is uh, he's done his homework and he's got the hardware that, they, that they're going to need to go up against the, the Barrow Gang here. So on the second night that the Barrow Gang was staying in these cabins, a large contingent of cops crept up to the cabins, armed to the teeth with uh, with all this all this new hardware. They got you know fancy great big guns, tear gas. They've got uh, they've got the shields as I mentioned. They've got an armored car, all the rest of it. They used the armored car to block the garage door that were behind which the Barrow Gang's car had been put, and then they went up and knocked on the front door of one of the cabins. Now Blanche she calls out from inside the cabin loud enough to warn Clyde, Buck, and Jones what was happening. Uh, and as soon as these three hear what's going on, they hear, they realise, recognise that the cops are, are standing outside these cabins. These three men immediately just started blasting. Immediately, they, they've got these high-powered guns they've knocked off from the National Guard, and uh, these guns they pushed the cops back. Uh, but the bulletproof shields, thankfully for the police, held. And so none of the cops were injured. But they did have to retreat. And as they pulled back Bonnie, Clyde and Jones, they ran to the car inside the garage to prepare their escape. But, of course, after peeking outside the garage door, they saw that they were trapped. They were blocked in by this armoured car. So what do they do? You'll remember I, I said it was supposed to be bulletproof. Well, the gangsters, they didn't know this. And so they opened fire on it. They thought, you just, just like all the other problems they've got in life, blasted away with guns. And as it turns out, the car was not particularly bulletproof at all. The car was riddled with bullets, and uh, the driver of the car, poor driver, they're still sat in the front seat, he's hitting the legs. And on top of that, one of the bullets that was fired pierced the horn mechanism. This caused the horn to sound one big, long, piercing honk that just went on and on and on. And here's where things get truly ridiculous. Because many of the cops, they heard this blaring horn and they thought that it was a call for a ceasefire. So many of them pulled back further, one of them even firing off a tear gas canister just for good measure. But this tear gas canister was not very well aimed. It overshot the cabins vastly. And when the wind caught the gas, 
it blew it right back into the faces of the cops, and so now they're all stuck in a fog of tear gas. To make things worse for them, the driver of the arm, this supposedly armoured, this supposedly armoured bulletproof car, now decides that he's had just about enough. He's been shot in the leg. His horn is going. Bloody, it's it's all terrible, right? So he he fires up the car to drive away. So this is a ridiculously lucky Blake break for the gangsters. The the the, the cops have just tear gassed themselves. The, the 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 only obstacle preventing their car from getting out of the garage is driven away. So the gangsters they take advantage of the situation, quickly pile into their car now. That the blockage in front of the garage has been removed, and they try to make a break for it. However, in order to do this. Blanche and Buck had to exit the adjoining cabin and rush over to get inside the car, and doing this exposed them to some of the cops. And as Blanche and Buck raced to to get in the car, some of the cops opened fire on them, and Buck was hit quite badly. Blanche was blinded in one eye by either shrapnel or broken glass as the cops unloaded on the gangster's car as it began to race away. However, the cops were unable to give chase. And uh, and uh, and once again, the uh, the Barrow Gang had affected an escape. Although, as we'll see, it wasn't quite quite the clean getaway that they they would have been hoping for. But quite miraculously for the cops, based on you know the the track record of the Barrow Gang, not a single one of them had been killed, and and most of them had, had escaped with only very minor injuries, if if they were injured at all. So it was, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to say that it went too badly. Uh, for for law enforcement there, considering the notor the notoriety, the deadly reputation uh, of the uh, of the Barrow Gang, none of the cops had been killed. Some had minimal injuries, as I say, but nothing too severe at all. Uh, and and the funniest story to emerge from the, for the from the injuries that the cops sustained here was that Sheriff Collie himself he had been grazed on his neck with buckshot. And in later years, he would uh, he would brag. He would enjoy bragging about surviving this encounter with the Barrow Gang, you know, and the scars. He'd show people the scars that he got to show for it. And it only emerged much, much later uh, because he enjoyed bragging about this story, you know, so much so, in fact, that some of his deputies decided not to reveal for a very long time that the buckshot had, in fact, been from friendly fire. Yeah, one of the other officers had actually grazed the sheriff with the buckshot, not the gangsters themselves. But they did let the sheriff have that one. Anyway, the cops, they go inside the cabins and uh, and they search them thoroughly to find all sorts of, you know, used medical supplies, some food, and just an unbelievable amount of guns. Oh, like, just a ridiculous amount of firepower. Over 50 guns by some accounts. They really had been busy building that arsenal up, uh, back up. Bloody hell. But as I say... Thanks to the car moving out of the way, thanks to the tear gas, the, the, the Barrow gang had made a, made a getaway. Not a clean one, but a getaway all the same. Blanche uh, was half blind and Buck was in a very bad way indeed. I told you he'd been shot and he, he had been shot through the head. While he was still alive, it really, really wasn't looking good. It didn't kill him, but uh, he wasn't far away from death, to be honest. They travelled north into Iowa, and they settled down in an abandoned amusement park where Clyde and Jones actually dug a grave for Buck because he was he was still semi-conscious and he was sort of babbling a bit and he was able to eat. But uh, with this massive wound to his head, the gang assumed that he, he, he wasn't going to live to tell the tale. But a trail of abandoned bloodied cloths and bandages, they led the police to the gangsters, however, and just a few days after their escape from the, from the cabins, the cops, they were onto them again. Local cops and a huge crowd of spectators, over 100 people, many of them had been deputised by law enforcement as well, and some of them, if you'll believe it, right? So you've got cops, you've got deputised civilians, but you've also got people who had brought along dates, because of how famous this story was and because, you know, they'd heard that the, these cops were going to go and affect the arrest of Bonnie and Clyde, 
they had used this as a as a romantic getaway to impress the people that they were after there. So over a crowd of over 100 people, some of them on dates, unbelievable, converged on this abandoned amusement park to see what would happen. And what happened was this. As the cops approached the gang, the shooting began very quickly indeed, as you might expect. We have already talked about how trigger-happy the gang was, and, and the cops, of course, weren't mucking around when it came to these hardened, notorious criminals. But somehow, Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones, they all managed to escape. They made a break for it. They ran into the, into the scrub, into the, uh, into the underbrush, and they were able to hide. Uh, you know, the, even, even with Bonnie's leg in the state it, uh, that it was, they did manage to run away. Clyde provided covering fire as, as Jones and, uh, and Bonnie got away and then later himself escaped as the cops were occupied with Buck and Blanche. Um, uh, Jones and Clyde dragged Bonnie from the scene, stole a car from a nearby farmer, and they made themselves scarce. As for Buck and Blanche, well, it didn't go so well for them. Buck, he got shot again in this, uh, in this ordeal, in this encounter. This time he got shot in the back. And Blanche surrendered and was later imprisoned, uh, while Buck, uh, unfortunately, he died a few days later of, of the injuries he'd sustained, both in the head uh, and the back there. So that was the end of Buck Barrow. But over the, next, uh, over the next couple of weeks, the three escapees, Jones, Bonnie and Clyde, they, uh, they roamed a long way away from their usual stomping grounds, as far away as, Min- uh, as Mississippi, uh, Colorado, Minnesota. So they really did travel far and wide here to try to take the heat off. But... You know, in spite of this, they continued to do what they do, what they did best. They committed armed robberies. They st- they stole cars. They stole money. They stole once again plenty of guns because again they'd, they'd left so many of them behind in the cabins. And after six weeks on the run like this, they decided that finally they decided they were ready to risk going back to Dallas to visit their respective families. And it was here that Jones parted ways with Bonnie and Clyde for the last time. Or rather, I think you could fairly put it, escaped from them, as he didn't really want to follow them to the bloody fate that they had felt they, they felt they had waiting for them. So they headed back to Texas and bid farewell to Jones, who who had grown increasingly reluctant to stay on with Bonnie and Clyde. Seemingly he had done so out of fear. Uh, but back in Texas, when the three of them had stolen a new car, he got in it, and rather than drive ahead to find a place to change cars, he turned off the headlights and fled down country roads at top speed to lose them. He went on to Houston to stay with his mother. He was arrested there. Uh, He claimed to be glad to be imprisoned, as he'd finally be safe from Bonnie and Clyde. Although there is some speculation that, you know, a lot of this was sort of play-acting. Uh, and that he was trying to drum up some sympathy as a, you know as a sort of uh, unwilling victim of the of this couple of this pair here again kept kept under a fear of uh, you know, kept by dread of them rather than being a, a voluntary participant in effort to perhaps lower his culpability you know make himself out as a as a victim of Clyde's tyranny or maybe he just was you know a scared kid who knows but uh, he was imprisoned in any case and then later paroled uh, before being knocked back when he tried to join up for the Second World War because he, uh, he was scanned. And doctors found buckshot and and a bullet in his chest, as well as well as part of his his lung missing. So the wages of sin certainly did uh, uh, have their uh, have their way with uh, with poor old W D D Jones in uh, in later life. But he does depart our story now, the story of Bonnie and Clyde, as they made their way back to Texas. Bonnie and Clyde did seem to be quite devoted to their families, and they did want to go back and visit them, despite the risk it would involve. But as I say, these two young, carefree, reckless, and they did fully anticipate. Uh, you know, a, a, a fiery exit into an early grave, and and they seem to be to be you know quite happy for that to happen. So they headed back to Texas to, to go and see their families. Anyway, 
They go to Dallas, stay there for quite a while. Clyde went out, perpetrated a couple of, you know, a few small time robberies here and there while both he and his fan and, and Bonnie's family, I should say, looked after her and her uh, and her injured leg, of course. However, the net was closing in on them in Dallas in a major way. And one night in November, after spending uh, two months there in, uh, in Dallas, the cops attempted to spring a trap to catch them. Bonnie and Clyde had driven over to a family member's place for a visit, but Clyde, as he approached, he, sm- he smelled a rat. He suspected a trap as he, as he rolled up on this house, and so he drove past the family's house without stopping, and sure enough, as he drove past, cops leapt up from their hiding spots, spots and opened fire on Bonnie and Clyde's car. Now, both of them, they were hit in the legs. You'd think that they'd... You think they've had enough bloody lower lower body injuries by now, but uh, once again, in spite of these, uh, in spite of being shot like this, they were once again able to escape somehow. So I tell you what, they were very very fortunate indeed, but they did get away, and they had to go back into hiding. Of course, had to go back into hiding, but by now, an active murder warrant had been issued to Clyde, and so the heat was on. And as we move into 1934, therefore, Clyde was determined to come back to his old objective. We've forgotten about this a little bit. His old objective of vengeance on the Texan prison system as he sensed that, you know, maybe the end was coming. He wanted to uh, he wanted to see this uh, this objective through. And so he planned a very ambitious breakout. Now, you have to cast your mind back. Remember Raymond Hamilton, the bloke who had been replaced by Jones ages ago? He was currently imprisoned at the very same prison that Clyde had been sent to years ago, Eastern Prison Farm. So Clyde... He managed to smuggle weapons into the prison, and he organised a plan to spring Hamilton and a few others from it. And on the 16th of January 1934, with these smuggled weapons, Hamilton and his accomplices, uh, including a bloke named Methan, uh, overpowered some of the guards out in the fields, shooting one of them dead, while Clyde covered them uh, with his high-powered rifle from a nearby creek. Bonnie was waiting in the car. She blasted the horn as the prearranged signal for these inmates to dash over uh, to the escape vehicle and uh, and make their way away from the prison. So it was, by all accounts, a total success. Four inmates, Hamilton and Methven amongst them, dashed to the car, piled in, and the escape, they, they got away very cleanly. And interestingly, there was also a fifth inmate who managed to effect an escape here, unconnected, totally unconnected to Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, he used the chaos that this escape attempt uh, had, had caused to make an escape of his own, although he was later recaptured and had no idea what had even happened uh, with the breakout plan, but he did enjoy at least one night of freedom there. But it seemed that with this successful breakout, however, Bonnie and Clyde had finally, finally gone too far. The Texan government, the US government, poured endless, limitless resources now into finding them and the escape convicts, with the boss of the prison vowing to see the escapees dead. They also brought in a former Texas Ranger whose name was Frank Hamer. Uh, He was charged with tracking down the Barrow Gang and bringing them to justice, and he trailed them relentlessly from February onwards, living out of his car. And from from after this breakout, Bonnie and Clyde and their gang, they were living on borrowed time. And they made it worse for themselves as well. On the 1st of April 1934, Clyde and one of the escaped convicts shot and killed two more police officers. It was this bloke, Methven. They were uh, the, the gang, they were sleeping in their car um, and two highway officers investigated. Uh, and when Clyde, apparently, the story goes, and you know, you can take this as a grain of salt. It's never, it's never actually been confirmed. But the story goes that Clyde said, take them, right? Which, uh, by which he mean we should kidnap them. But Methven took that to mean, kill them, shoot them. And so he pulled his gun and shot them. And then by that, you know, the die was cast. And so Clyde uh, followed suit and, and, and blasted them to pieces. Um, and so this, of course, poured, 
much more fuel on the fire. The somewhat romantic reputation and perception of Bonnie and Clyde was, was deteriorating very swiftly at this stage, especially, of course, after the, these killings, when uh, very famously the fiancé of one of the dead cops turned up to his funeral in her wedding dress. The papers had a field day with that one, and, and you know, public opinion very quickly turned on Bonnie and Clyde. And five days after this debacle here, five days after this, the Barragan killed another cop. Their car had become stuck in mud, and when two cops stopped to see what was going on, they shot one of them and kidnapped the other, who happened to be a police chief. They drove him out some distance, then let him go with some money and instructions to tell the media that Bonnie did not, in fact, smoke cigars, but their reputation was beyond saving, and they had far, far too much heat on them now to continue. Public opinion had turned firmly against them, and with the government determined to bring them to justice, as well as Texas Ranger Hamer on their tails, it would soon be the end of Bonnie and Clyde. The gang numbers dwindled too. By May, it was just it was just this infamous couple, Bonnie and Clyde. The other escapees had left them, or had been, uh, or, or had been left behind. One of them, this bloke Methvin, Henry Methvin, he was left behind in a sandwich shop. Methvin had gone inside to get the gang sandwiches, and Clyde had spooked when he'd saw uh, when he'd seen a cop car go past, and so sped off, leading Methvin behind. And this this proved to be a uh, a very very uh, important development in the Bonnie and Clyde case because because what happened was this. Methvin, after being abandoned in the sandwich shop, he hitchhiked to his parents' place and told his father what had just happened, how he'd been abandoned by Bonnie and Clyde, and included in his story plans that the gang had made if they were ever separated, right? The plans that they'd made to, to, to meet up at a, at a rendezvous point. Now, Methvin's dad then passed this information on to the cops, perhaps without Methvin even knowing that he'd done this. And this was an instrumental piece of information for the next part of the story. So... Clyde speeding off from this uh, this sandwich shop when Henry Methvin was was left there inside ended up very much catalyzing the downfall of uh, of this notorious couple. Although, of course, if it hadn't been this, it surely would have been something else. Because, as I say, there was just too much heat on them at this point. Hamer had been tracking the gang since February, and he had noticed something very important about their movements. Remember before I mentioned how they had posted up near a border and how this was very normal activity, a very normal behavior for them? It certainly was. This was typical of Bonnie and Clyde, as they tended to skirt along state borders to take advantage of a law that prevented state cops from from pursuing criminals across state lines. And using this information, recognizing that there was a level of predictability to the way that Clyde guided his gang along, along, you know, very close to state borders, Hamer began to predict Bonnie and Clyde's movements. And when the tip came in about a rendezvous spot in case of the gang being split up, and the fact that the gang had indeed been split up in this way, Hamer gathered a posse of five other men and he set off, making his best guesses to how to intercept them, uh, you know, at or near this rendezvous point. Uh, in order to to finally bring this uh, bring this couple uh, to justice, so the uh, this posse of six lawmen they set up an ambush on the side of a road in Louisiana near the reported rendezvous point, and they settled down to wait for Bonnie and Clyde to appear. They parked Methvin's father's vehicle on the side of the road, hoping that Bonnie and Clyde would slow down and stop near it, thinking that they would be meeting Methvin there again. Now, some reports said that they set the trap on the on the on the twenty first of May, others on the twenty second. But whatever the case. By the morning of the 23rd, nothing had happened, no one had shown, and the posse of officers was just about ready to call it quits. But then, at about quarter past nine on the morning of the 23rd, there was the sound of a car approaching at high speed. And sure enough, 
It was Bonnie and Clyde in this uh, in this car, one of the one of the many stolen cars that they that they'd used. And uh, again, sure enough, just as they'd uh, just as the posse had uh, had hoped, Clyde slowed down after seeing the vehicle that had been left on the side of the road here, the vehicle that belonged to Methven's father. But before Clyde could even bring the car to a stop, the six lawmen leapt from their hiding place and they opened fire on Bonnie and Clyde in their car. They were not about to let them get not not, not about to let them get another chance to escape or indeed to draw on them given the uh, the the deadly reputation that they had as uh, as criminals here. And here after after these blokes jumped out and uh, and sprang the ambush that they'd set up there, here's what happened in the words of one of the official reports made by the officers in the posse. <clears throat> Each of us six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car got even with us. Then we used shotguns. There was smoke coming from the car and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards on down the road. It almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. The reputation of Bonnie and Clyde was so intimidating that these six heavily armed, highly experienced law enforcement officers decided to just riddle their car with bullets rather than give them the slightest chance to respond. Now, the officers in the wake of this uh, of this rain of gunfire, they'd all been deafened, of course, by, by the guns they'd just fired. But as they approached the car to investigate what had happened... What a sight they beheld. It was total carnage. The car had been hit by 112 bullets. You can go online and you can see pictures of what it looked like after the shootout. It is utterly ridiculous. And the car was absolutely full of weapons, from handguns to rifles to shotguns, with thousands of rounds of ammunition, as well as 15 sets of stolen license plates. And, of course, still seated in the car, were the bodies of Bonnie and Clyde, full of bullets. 17 of them had hit Clyde and 26 had hit Bonnie. And so ended the lives of two of the most notorious and infamous criminals in history. But the most bizarre part of this scene was yet to happen, because in the wake of this encounter, a crowd emerged and converged on the spot seeking souvenirs. People picked up shell casings and bloody bits of cloth. Some people even tried to cut off bits of Bonnie's hair and even Clyde's ear and trigger finger with their pocket knives. Unbelievable. It was an absolute circus. People keen as anything to get a souvenir or a keepsake of some kind from the scene. Incredible. But the posse, they tried to keep these people at bay and they towed the car with the corpses still inside to a nearby town, Arcadia, and reportedly 10,000 people travelled to Arcadia in the coming time to be close to this unfolding bit of history, again showing the huge public interest that this case had generated. As for Bonnie and Clyde, they were embalmed with uh, with some difficulty, apparently. According to one of the undertakers, the embalming fluid that he was using kept leaking out of all of the holes in the two bodies. And another one of the undertakers, interestingly, he was a fellow named H.D. Darby, he was able to officially identify the bodies, even despite the fact that he was one of the undertakers working on them, because he had previously been kidnapped by the pair. And it gets better because Bonnie, while he'd been kidnapped, 
had laughed with him and said, had laughingly suggested that he, he one day may work on their bodies. An eerily accurate prediction. Anyway, given the public interest in this whole affair, any location that had absolutely anything to do with these two was absolutely swamped with people almost immediately. Bonnie and Clyde, they wished to be buried together, obviously, but their families didn't allow this to happen. And as, as we head towards their funerals, they actually ended up being buried separately. But their funerals were an absolute spectacle particularly Bonnie's, apparently over 20,000 people attempted to attend, attend her funeral and catch a glimpse of her corpse. Um, and this made it near impossible for her family to actually get to her gravesite for the burial. And she had flowers sent from all over, huge numbers of them. And the biggest order of these flowers came from, believe it or not, a group of newspaper sellers in Dallas, the Newsboys, as the story of the death of Bonnie and Clyde had sold them half a million papers in a single day. Clyde's funeral was a somewhat quieter affair as the family kept it much more private, but it still attracted a lot of interest, of course, as people were very keen to see the bodies. But somewhat sadly, the six lawmen who had brought down Bonnie and Clyde, they didn't really ever receive the reward that they were promised. The notoriety was was one thing, but also the, the money. They were, I mean, $26,000 had been the promised sum, but in the end, they only got about 200 bucks each. They did keep, get to collect and keep some of the weapons and souvenirs from the car, some of which they actually then returned to the families of Bonnie and, Cl- families of Bonnie and Clyde, including Clyde's saxophone, which had been in the car as he died. But uh, for the most part, these lawmen really didn't get their, uh, their day in the limelight in the same way, of, the same way, of course, that of the, the people that they just killed did. But, uh, you know, that's, that, that's the way that that story went there. Finally, the car itself, which, of course, remained an item of great interest to people in the years that followed, uh, all the way through to today, really, this car is actually still on display today. It is on display at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada, even today, along with Clyde's bloodstained shirt. So you can go to Prim, you can go to Nevada, you can go to Whiskey Pete's and you can see the car in all its glory, a relic of this bygone criminal era. And it very much was, let me tell you this, it very much was a bygone criminal era. Because within months of the death of Bonnie and Clyde, heavy criminal reforms swept across the United States, even as other famous gangsters like John Dillinger and Babyface Nelson also met their, uh, met their untimely ends. Bank robbery, kidnapping, these became federal crimes. This removed the state border as an obstacle for their persecution. And the FBI uh, became even more organized and more coordinated in hunting gangsters like these down. And on top of that, Police cars around the country began to become, uh, they began to be more commonly outfitted with two-way radios, making getting away with major crimes like these all the more difficult. So law enforcement, the long and the short of it is, law enforcement caught up with career criminals, but not before stories like that of Bonnie and Clyde had already had their enormous cultural impact on the world. The tale of these two criminals, dead at 23 and 25, captured the public imagination and was only romanticised further in the decades after their death in film and in TV. People won't let the truth get in the way of a good story, certainly, but even for all the exaggeration and the mischaracterisation of this pair, particularly Bonnie, their cultural legacy today is still difficult to overstate. We still use the term modern day Bonnie and Clyde to refer to either, you know, a criminal couple or alternatively a couple who seem to be prepared to go to the grave together. And the real life Bonnie and Clyde did very much seemed to be prepared to do just that for the entirety of their short time together. They were young, they were, they were wild, and they were reckless. And let's not forget, they were also cold-blooded and ruthless murderers. 
we seem to forgive that, given the timbre of their story. We, we seem to, uh, to, to let it slide. And the expectation that these two had to, to blazingly crash into an early grave together, this expectation that, of course, was ultimately fulfilled, is certainly the lasting legacy of these two. We overlook the, the countless crimes and the cold-blooded murder these two perpetrated before their story finally came to an end. Their, their legacy was finally secured on a Louisiana roadside one morning in May. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. And because this story was so ridiculously long, this episode is one of the longest I've ever done. We are going to blitz through the housekeeping stuff. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, contact form there. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. You can buy stuff at uh, the merch shop. There's a link there on the website as well. And, of course, the Patreon. Uh, if you want to support me on Patreon, you certainly can. Special thank you. Big shout-outs. Big, massive ups to all the people, sir, keeping me uh, so well paid on uh, on the Half House History Patreon. I very, very much appreciate it. Good on each and every single one of you. Closing out the show, talked a lot about cops today. Obviously, it's been a one a, a rip roaring, um, a rip roaring tour of the criminal underworld today. As we talked about Bonnie and Clyde, and the police played a big part in uh, in bringing them down. So we've got a we've got a question to do with the cops here. It's a good one too, posted by uh, redditor insipid underscore comment, who's uh, who's really got a puzzler for us to think about here. This happens to me as well. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else has experienced this. <clears throat> insipid comment asks, why do the police turn the pitch down on their siren whenever they pass me?